Psalm 2, verse 1 through 12 is worth reading, but I've only got a couple of the verses listed there for space sake. And he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Of course, that's the father speaking over Christ the son. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Habakkuk 2.14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 11, uh, just reading verses 9 and 10, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples. Of course, if you've ever been around Advent readings, you know the root of Jesse is Christ. John 20, verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And lastly, jumping down to Mark 16, 15 through 20, we'll read on the back page next week. Uh, Mark 16, 15 through 20. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. He who has disbelieved shall be condemned. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. When the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by the signs that followed. Now, uh, in the 930 Sunday School, I started part A of this uh, Taking Him to the Streets, chapter 2, chapter 2 of, uh, of our seminar at the Alliance Renewal Conference. Chapter 1, we talked about the outreach efforts of Grace Christian Fellowship, which I assume most of you know about Kids Rock and Wiz Kids and Rock Campus Fellowship and at least some of the things we're doing with those. But I wondered, uh, after talking to certain people who went to my seminar this weekend from our church, I wondered how many of us knew uh, all the concepts that go that, that have to come together, that have to be inextricably intertwined, that have to work coterminously, meaning at the same time, if these things are going to be biblical and be effective. Okay, We are not a marketing church. We're not a seeker-sensitive church. We're not going to grow by anything except the hard, painstaking effort of uh, birthing one baby at a time and growing them up in the uh, old-fashioned way. <laughs> uh, so, we're in other words, we're going to grow, grow by proclaiming the kingdom, making disciples, and uh, discipling those disciples into Christian maturity, one person at a time, with years of tears and time spent, and verses discussed, and encouragement and correction and instruction with all patience, as Paul tells Timothy. So that's, uh, we'll be talking today about, uh, we're going to start part B in that point three, a, a decision-making model versus a discipleship model. However, as you know, we uh, give attention to the public reading of scripture, as was the practice of the church from the beginning. So we had some scripture readings. I'm going to just take a minute to comment a couple comments on today's scripture readings. The first one, Mark 6, 1, 16 through 18, we all know that fishing is following. That was actually a point, the first point of our seven in the, in the point A there. Um, 
let me break down verse 17 into five phrases. And uh, I, I think it's significant that there's five points there because five is the number of grace in the Bible. And as Jesus said to them, that's the first one. That's not just something to blow off. Because in John 5, 29, Jesus said, a time will come. Can you turn that off, please? When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now, he goes on later to talk about physical death and the resurrection, but he's not talking about that in that passage. He's talking about the fact that every person comes into this world spiritually dead. And it's actually like the verse we discussed from 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, I thank God that you received, when you you received from us, you received it for what it was, the word of God and not the word of men. Now, it may come through Jason Hale leading a discussion at Rock Campus Fellowship on Tuesday night, but when it becomes to somebody sitting in one of the discretion groups, Jesus talking to them through the scripture that's being discussed, and it's not just the people who are sharing their various points about in the discussion or Jason uh, talking about it, it goes beyond that and and you understand in your spirit, this is the word of God, this is Jesus opening up my eyes to what he's saying. That, Jesus said, the words I speak are spirit in life. No matter who's leading the Bible study or doing the teaching, when the anointing of the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to understand it and see Christ in it, that's when it's made alive to you. Secondly, he says, follow me. That's an active thing. We have this idea about grace because grace is free. We have translated in the last 150 years more and more to grace is passive. Grace requires no investment. Most Christians are today are basically sitting in a room, metaphorically, with lots and lots of presents. And because they think grace is free, They're just going to sit there the rest of their life. They're never going to start unwrapping those presents. But the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've got to start working out grace. Because it's God that's at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You're not more accepted by it, but you understand his, his grace and his acceptance of you and his empowerment, and you get empowered by it as you walk in that mystery, that it's always God's initiation. It's always God's motivation. It's always God's free choice that you never deserved. And the only basis that you, that, that, uh, as Jesus, as John made clear in his uh, talk called blindness, uh, it's not for people who've lived the more godly life or the worst sinners. Uh, the beauty of it all is it's for the people who say, I'm blind, come Help me, save me, Lord, I'm yours. That's the only requirement. You can be the worst junkie, uh, bank robber, uh, chainsaw murderer versus a boy scout. And you always did, you know, you grew up in church and you have done all the right things, you think. Uh, But the bottom line is you're lost, you're blind. And when you admit that before God is the only requirement. 
he who humbles himself will be exalted. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If your life, look, step back and look at your life. If it looks more like God resists the proud, <laughs> I encourage you to, to cry, begin to cry out to God to teach you how to humble yourself. Uh, I'll make you uh, is the, the third phrase. That What's amazing about that is he created you in the first place. Genesis 2, 7, God gathered the dust of the earth, speaking of the material aspects of you. He breathed into him the breath of life, speaking of the spiritual aspect of you, and he became a self-conscious living being. Speaking of your whole being is a, a soul. When you come to Christ, God does not make all new things. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, new things have come. He doesn't make all new things. He makes all things new. Now, that's huge. So, if you love music, he's more likely going to change why you love music and what kind of music you listen to and why you do it. But you may still come out loving music. <laughs> he, you may love work, but he's going to change why you love wor love working, so that you work unto him and not unto man, or not as some workaholic driven or what. He's going to change all everything in you to something new. He's going to create in you a clean heart. He's going to renew a steadfast spirit. He's going to not cast you away from his presence. He's going to bring you into his presence. He's going to give to you the first time and continue to restore the joy of your salvation. And it's only then that you'll teach sinners his ways and transgressors will be converted to him. I took that from Psalm 51, verses 10 through 12, if you're keeping score or taking notes. Um, become. We are becoming. And you need to be seriously partnering with God and with your local church to be becoming a team fisher of men. So there's five really important points in that one line. Uh, that's all I'll go into for today. Maybe I'll speak uh, more on the, those uh, next week. I was going to comment on a few others, but that that's one that's worth thinking about. Five things that Jesus is saying in Mark 1.17. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. Lord, help us continue to be coming. So on point, chapter 2.3 is where we left off. We were talking about the sinner's prayer today. Sinner's prayer, we talked about how when people pray to God, they have a much diminished view of God in their mind and heart. Uh, one of the things is you're doing Bible studies with people as you're encouraging them to read the Bible for them, their own self. Ask God, open their eyes to see you for who you are. High and I saw the Lord, Isaiah 6 says high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. One of the reasons, we're going to talk about a number of reasons today why people need to be in a worshiping, Bible-teaching, discipling community as they're coming to Christ. One of the reasons is, is the worship, uh, when people begin to sing along, God is enthroned upon the praises of his people. That really begins to set people free. I re because, frankly, when you're lost and when you're full of demonic spirits and so forth, you'll have exactly the re reaction I had when I came to this kind of worship the first time. I sat about where Catherine was sitting in a meeting 
where for some reason, every seat was taken in the first like three or four rows. They all packed together. And we like to spread out, it looks like. But they were all packed in three or four rows. And it was the summertime for a campus ministry. So they, you know, like 75% of the people were home for the summer. And they're all worshiping the Lord and, and you know, dancing around and waving their hands. Jesus is king. And, and, I, and I like, I will say, I, I will never do that. <laughs> never say never. Um, and I, I was quick to get out of there. I wanted to make sure that I got out of there before any of those crazy people talked to me. So, I mean, that's where you're at. And in, in part of how you come to the Lord is you begin to see him high and lifted up in his train filling the temple. And there's nothing like opening your mouth. And the Bible says, open your mouth and I will fill it. So, uh, you know, Hebrews 13, 15, through him, that is Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Uh, singing the word of God and singing the attributes of God and the redemptive acts of God. That's really what the content of worship, right? It's scripture. It's the redemptive acts of God, the gospel, what he's done in Christ and is doing in Christ. And it's the attributes of God, his holiness, his worthiness, that he's the creator, etc. That's what we sing. And that starts to get into your spirit and you start becoming who you were always intended to be when you sing to the Lord. I encourage you to sing to the Lord and sing to the Lord and then take a break and then sing to the Lord and sing to the Lord some more. I'm always amazed there aren't more guitar players because like it makes a lot more. Everyone should learn to play the guitar enough to sing to the Lord. Not everyone, but most people should. Um, so that's, you know, in the sinner's prayer, God, uh, we, we, you know, we have become what's called a felt needs approach. You know, most versions of the gospel starts with uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And, and if you're a lady, he has a man for your plan and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and this kind of thing, what God can do for you. Okay, well... That's not where the Ten Commandments start, nor the Bible. Okay, so first of all, we need to, you know, really to know who we're talking to when we say God. Then when we say I'm a sinner, we mean that we have some moralistic uh, uh, flaws that we've, you know, had a few bad thoughts or whatever. But the essence of our sin is Romans 3.10, there is none that seeks for God. No, not one. Romans 1, uh, they chose to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Even most people, when they first start thinking about God, it's because they want someone or something back that God has taken away from them because sin has, is, is the wages of sin is death. It's not necessarily even God that took it away from you. It's just simply as you pursue and live according to sin, things will eventually start to fall apart. Relationships, health, jobs, everything. Because it doesn't work outside of a Christ-centered existence. If you're not working at your job out of your desire to see God glorified, it will eventually become a curse to you. If you're not married to a husband or wife that you desire, 
to show the world a mystery of the love of Christ for his church, it will eventually blow up in your face. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, Paul said in Colossians 1.14. So when you say, I'm a sinner, you need to understand the depth of that. I often take Bible school people who've gone to Bible colleges and just say, you really need to start meditating on the bad news, as we're going to talk about today. You know, in other words, you know, God is rescuing you from something much more horrific in yourself than you ever thought. And it's, a, it's the most loving thing you can do for someone to help them see how horrific it is. Because Romans 5.20 says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. As long as you still have one set uh, iota of trying to control things and be your own God and self-righteousness, and I think I know better than other people, there's no hope for you. But when you when God breaks that all out of you and you totally give it to him, you're on your on the road to salvation. You're on the Romans road, <laughs> as they some people call it. So does that make sense? Um, then we say, come in, uh, I'm a sinner, come into my life, by which we mean, uh, boy, I got a lot of messes going on. Can, can you please clean these up? But real, I need you to clean them up with the minimum of interference with how I'm doing things. <laughs> like, you know, make sure you stay in the backseat. Don't even think about driving. Don't, don't think about tearing down the house and remodeling. You know, I, I wanna, I'm going to continue to run stuff, but, you know, I am a sinner. I made some mistakes, and there is a big mess, and uh, you're going to be my yard boy. And uh, you're going to mow the lawn and rake the leaves and, and clean it up and clean up all this mess, but don't try to interfere too much. That's really what most people mean when they pray the sinner's prayer at a Christian rock concert or what have you. Well, that won't get you there. Jesus said, I'm the door. I'm the great shepherd. That's not going through the door. Because Jesus has this problem. He thinks he's God. And so when you oh, when he knocks at the door, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears, hears my voice and bids me to come in. So we open the door and we say, Hey, Jesus, come in. But before you come in, just need to let you know, wipe your feet, put, take your shoes off. Don't bring your friends in here with you. They're, you know, all those guys, they're kind of crazy, most of them. They're always speaking in tongues and praising Jesus and stuff. And, you know, just come in and I'll let you know where to sit and when to talk. And, and Jesus has this little problem where he says, uh, you need to understand, like, I'm the chief shepherd. I made you. You are my sheep. And uh, I, if I'm coming in, I'm coming in to buy the house. I died to buy it. And you need to understand that you got to sign this contract. And I have this thing called a Bible. And, you'll, and when you sign on the dotted line, I'll start to explain what it means to you as I tore the house down and rebuild it. 
Okay, that's really how, that's, that's Jesus' view of, of salvation. I'll explain the contract to you as we go. <laughs> because the veil is lifted in Christ. You can read the Bible all you want. You can be religious. You can take communion. You can do the stations of the cross. You can do all the things. But if you, until you let Jesus in on his terms, you're not going to see it. I just had a conversation very recently with someone who went to church for a long time and read good parts of the Bible, fairly, fairly significant portions, and said, you know, that since I came to Christ and since I started praying things like we're talking about here, I'm starting to understand it. Well, that's because there's actually a doctrine called the clarity of Scripture. When you hear Jesus' voice, when you invite him in on his terms, as king of kings, and you're, you're like, you cannot magnify how deep your depravity goes enough, and you can't see how great he is enough. And when you start to do it that way, and I'm going to leave our, anything that you say to leave in any relationship and any uh, way of relating to people and you know, my plan for my college, everything is, everything is, uh, is going to be killed. That all your Isaacs. Okay. I was going to do this with my life and that with my life. And then you'd invite Jesus in and he messes it all up. I, if any of you were around here for the remodeling a little bit last year, you saw way less than you would have seen if you were at my house 25 years ago. When God, when you remodel thoroughly, the first thing that happens is a big mess. God starts opening your eyes to see the depth of your sin, and you're like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, it's like that movie, uh, The Money Pit, you know. They, they tear into this house, and it's all a mess, and it's going on, and, he, and, he, and the guy keeps going, how long is this going to take? And the contractor says, oh, about two weeks. <laughs> and, you know, they're months and months and months into it. Well, how much longer is it going to take? Oh, a couple weeks, about two weeks. <laughs> and, and he goes, I don't think you're doing anything. He goes, not doing anything. You got, we got our trash pile over here. And we got our drywall junk dust pile over here. <laughs> you know, we got all the old nails and two by fours over here. We, you know, here's, here's all the stuff we ripped out of the basement. There's a lot going on here. <laughs> You know, part of the part of the how God starts to help you is He really begins to open your eyes to how bad it really is, and that's the most loving thing that could ever happen to you. The more you see how bad it is, the more you'll realize I can't fix this myself. I need to be rescued here. And then Jesus, then then He comes through the door and says, "You mean you need to be rescued here?" You got no hidden agendas, no strings attached, no plans except my plans? Okay, I'll come on in. All right, and I'll bring my family with me. <laughs> they're called the church, and they're going to really mess up your house. Praise God. Now, now that's the sinner's prayer. And then I'd like to go to heaven when this is all over. <laughs> Frankly, the more this goes on, the more I can't wait to get there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. So we got that? All right. So on this, that's all part of what it means to, make a, to move from a decision-making model to a discipleship model. 
One of the things that we have, have learned to do is when people come here, the more church they had, the harder it is for them to come to Christ. And you just got to wait them out until God begins to bring them under enough conviction to, to really say, okay, Jesus, you're the Lord, not me anymore. I'm going to keep my opinions to a minimum instead of trying to keep your opinions to a minimum. Right? And sometimes we just let people, that's why we have gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered teachings, uh, gospel-centered creeds, gospel-centered communion, so that God can begin to let the gospel work on them until they really are beginning to be ready to hear, and then they eventually say, wow, this is not John Weiss's opinion or Jason Hale's Tuesday night opinion or Greg Weiss's opinion. This is the word of God. Then we say, welcome. <laughs> you're, now you're ready to become a Christian. Really? Now, that leads into this point, rethinking the gospel. Um. John and I began to discuss this a lot on the back porch. Uh, he was living at home then, so he was there. Jason wasn't always there, but he was in on a lot of these talks too. And not only did we work on making our liturgy gospel-centered, but we began to say, hey, there's three or four points that people come to whenever they realize that the American sugar-coated gospel is not the biblical gospel. Lots of evangelicals are saying that out there. Lots of Catholics are saying that out there. But they usually get one or two of these seven, and they say, and then they write a book about how they've restored the gospel. Approximately 10 years ago, I began to seek for a good book that we could put in our foundational books about the gospel. I have not found that book yet. And as some people have pointed out to me, I'm probably going to have to write it. But the truth of the matter is, if you really want to get into all elements of the biblical gospel, nobody I know is saying the right things. Now, we may be a little church of 40 people if all the kids are here and stuff or whatever, but, um, you know, the kingdom of God is not about majorities. It's about the word of God. And Jesus had this little band of followers, but he was the most important thing happened in the Roman Empire. Now, I don't think we're the most important thing happened in the Christian circles, but I do think this. I think that this issue is, is ground zero, mission critical, so important, and I don't know anybody who really gets it to that level. That, that's an awesome responsibility, and if you're called to be part of Grace Christian Fellowship, you're called to really know a lot of Bible. Read a lot of Bible. Under, understand these seven points. We've talked, some of, you know, the one you normally get is verse, is number four, that he's more than Savior that he's Lord. I remember we helped the Impact World Tour people and so forth. They were hot on that. But when push came to shove, one or, one or two lines in today's climate about, hey, you need to make him more than your savior. Don't pray like the Are You Going booklet we have. 
says, don't pray this prayer unless you're willing to stop being your own Lord and make him Lord. Let me just say, nobody in America could hear that once and really get it. That's why Jesus' parable of the, of the uh, he has seven parables of the kingdom in, Ma- in Matthew 13. You need to study them all. But there were four kinds of soil. And we all call it the parable of the sower and the seed. As It's not that. It's the parable of soil. And any good farmer knows we need to pr- do soil prep. So as you're walking with people and loving with people, you're using the word of God to prepare to get that seed in because there's a type that immediately hears the word with joy. If they get that lordship versus savior idea the first time, they're that kind of person. You know, yeah, this guy, I met this guy and he started sharing with me about Jesus and I went on their summer retreat for uh, three days and I prayed to sinner's prayer and I asked God into my life. Let me tell you, you didn't get it. That kind of person immediately that can immediately receive the word with joy, Jesus says he has no firm root in himself. So when, not if, when persecutions and afflictions come about because of the word, he will lose it. Now, I don't care that they did that, but you need to help them understand that was a baby step in the right direction. That wasn't jumping down the flight of stairs (laughs) that you needed to do because the way down is the way up. Does that make sense? I hope you, I hope you get that. That was a baby step in the right direction. Just like maybe if you buy a Bible, it's a baby step in the right direction. It's even better baby steps. If you start to read it, you know, uh, but uh, the kind that bears fruit hears the word and perseveres and keeps hearing the word and keeps hearing the word until eventually there's fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. That's a disciple. That's a convert. Now, the ones we don't get, I'm not going to probably... Uh, I guess I'll just be content with getting through point three today and pick up point four. So the bad news, lots of us are now, you know, I have a CD called the bad news and the good news. Um, Most of you who've done Bible studies with me understand that we spend weeks talking about the bad news. The reason being is because almost no Christians I know understand that there's three enemies in the Christian life. There's a Satan and his demons, and they work with uh, the third enemy, man's fallen sinful nature. And those two together work together to create a, another enemy, the second enemy, the world system. Okay, the world system, what Paul calls Galatians 1.4, he says you need to be rescued from this present evil age. You don't need a therapist, you need a rescuer. And what you need rescued from is the ideas of this present evil age. So think this through with me. If there really is a Satan and his demons, and if he, if he's smarter than me, which you kind of have to admit, I mean, he's like in the Luther movie. He go Luther's pastor says, uh, arguing the devil with the devil will not do you any good. 
He's been there 5,000 years. He knows all the weak spots. So he understands that the way to get rid of the good news is to actually get rid of the bad news so that nobody even thinks they need the good news. Jesus loves you and he can give you a whole new life. Great. I like the life I got already. <laughs> See, what's happened in, in, the, in the church for the last 120 years or so is we've, had, we've been given good news presentations that due to our competition and our wanting to lower the bar so we can get more members and so forth, we keep lowering what we're saying in the good news, but nobody wants to hear it anyway because they don't know the bad news applies to them. So if you start with things like modern psychology, what did Freud teach us? Yes, you have this subconscious thing and you have all kinds of hidden motivations that you don't know about and so forth, and they're all uh, your parents' fault, the church's fault, your school's fault. It's somebody else's fault. Well, Genesis 3 gave us this, right? Blame shifting started with... So, but blame shifting has become a major thing taught at the university level. That's what sociologists are about. If you want to take, if you want to understand blame shifting, take a sociology class. Everything is the fault that my mother bit me when I was five. I had a bad neighborhood. The sun was in my eyes. I'm, and I, you know. Now, we're not uh, lacking compassion for people's environments, or we wouldn't be doing whiz kids and so forth. But you need to empower people because it's not your mother bit you when I was five. It's the fact that uh, you're, you let your mother's smothering love keep you from growing up into a man and you're still too much a boy or something like that. And your choices, you got bitter about it and you became rebellious about it. And so you can ask God to change your bitterness and you can forgive and, and you can become quick to forgive and slow to anger, but you can't go back and change that your mother bit you when she, you were five, Right? Or that you want the bad schools. Now, if you want the bad schools, you don't have to stay uneducated all your life. You know, it's I, I find it sad that I'm, you know, I'm forty gonna be forty years in the Lord this year, so I think people when they hear stuff, they don't believe me. But I'm telling you, for real, I was such a dopehead when I became a Christian that I mostly could say, Yeah, wow, man. I needed a I, you know, had to, in order to pass co a college class, I had to take English as a foreign language. <laughs> you know, I mean, I couldn't write a paper to save my life. They only had two or three remedial composition classes back then. You know, you had to get up to English 112 composition level to, to finish your freshman requirement, but they'd start you at 110 if you really couldn't read or write very well. But I needed to start at like 105. <laughs> you know, I needed to start at, the, you know, first or second grade level. Now, I used to read a lot before I blew my brains out with drugs. And I do believe the Lord healed my mind, and that was part of it. It was partly supernatural, but he healed it as I read he rebuilt my mind because I spent hours and hours and hours reading because I said, you know what? I have a call of God on my life that doesn't include being stupid. And I can't love Jesus if I don't really love his word a lot. 
And I even set a rule for myself at college that I wouldn't do my secular homework till I read his word three hours each day. Now that the last two weeks of school with the finals and all that rule was not, was ignored. But really most of my college, I did that. Now I'm not saying that to brag or whatever. I'm saying that you need to understand that our culture has systematically removed the bad news. Everything, I, you know, I hear from young guys, oh, my sociology teacher was a jerk. And well, what did you expect? He's a humanist university teaching Antichrist stuff. Duh. But God wants you to understand it and get an A anyway. I, you know, I hear about all this stuff about, oh, I, this and that. It, like, people are geniuses at making excuses. You know, I asked somebody to do something at the church a couple weeks ago and at 8.30 in the, in the morning, and, and uh, somebody else came and took it away at 10.30, and they said, well, I didn't have a chance to get down there because uh, they got there being t- t- before I did. Yeah, because after I asked you at 8.30, you went back to bed. <laughs> you know, uh, talk straight. Learn to confess. Learn to admit. Con- the word confession is the word hama legeo. It means, we all know what homogenized means. Homosexual is someone who likes the same sex, right? Homogenized milk is the cream in the, in the milk and the water have all been processed to not separate. Lagos is the word. You are really starting to get set free in life when you become undefensive, quick to take the blame, quick to fully admit your responsibility, and even if the dog ate your homework, you say, yeah, the dog ate my homework, but so I got up extra early and did it again. Now you're starting to grow up and get set free. Because you know what? The rest of your life, the dog's going to eat your homework. Your chimney's going to get hit by lightning. Your wife's not going to understand you. <laughs> that's the famous. Your pat. That's the famous. I always know I'm making no progress when I constantly hear from the, from someone I'm trying to disciple that well you don't really understand me or you didn't really hear me or you know, I'm like, shut up. <laughs> yeah, you're, I you're you're. The, I haven't understood you the, the way 16,000 other disciples since 1974 have not understood. And I'm all for listening. I'm not trying to be over the top here. I'm, but you get, I mean, really, that's God-centered versus man-centered. We've touched on. Uh, I'm going to have to pick it up with in the middle of three next time because I'm running out of time. On Let me talk about... Uh, the history of Israel part real quick, and then we'll stop and get Jason up here. Uh, we don't have a bunch of kids today, so we can run over a little bit. You can shoot me later. We're having a good, we're having tacos. So <laughs> you can all comfort yourself with tacos. The pastor talked too long, and I I, I, I got the tacos like 15 minutes later than I would have. <laughs> I've really suffered hardship as a soldier in the gospel. <laughs> 15-minute delay in the tacos. All right. Uh, <laughs> this thing about the history of Israel, now nobody gets this. There actually is one of our books, uh, Scott McKnight's book. Um, what's uh, what's his, his book? Jesus the King Jesus Gospel. Thank you. I asked James Davis to read it a long time ago when I was first reading it. 
uh, just to see if we liked it. You know, he I don't like how he expresses the story of Israel. He leaves too much room for people to say it's not historically accurate in the way he, but if as long as we understand the word of God is inerrant and it's historically accurate, you need to understand that in, in uh, uh, John, John had four points that he was just uh, focusing on when he went through the book of Acts. And one of them is this, is he called it an historically informed gospel. And that is, there's eight presentations of the gospel in the book of Acts. Every one of them does a lot with scriptures from the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. And really, I'm trying to just change the calling it the Hebrew scriptures. And they bring out how Christ was the fulfillment of all this, as Peter talks about how the spirit of God within the prophets was seeking to understand the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It's all about Jesus. And you need to understand it's all about Jesus for a lot of reasons. But Israel is called the son of God. And Jesus is the son of God. Israel is the suffering servant. Jesus is the suffering servant. Israel went down to Egypt in the time of Joseph and the patriarchs. Jesus fled to Egypt in his infancy when the angel told the, his, you know, Joseph and Mary to flee. Well, Joseph, Mary just obeyed. But um, how radical. Um, <laughs> so... And then out of Egypt, I called my son, applies to both Israel and Jesus all through the Bible. Okay? So every ass, every patriarch, every event, everything you read in the Hebrew Scriptures teaches about Christ. And the, the figures are, are, are word pictures of Jesus, every one of them. Or, or the opposite, you know, there's Cain and Abel and so forth. But see, Cain and Abel, do you want to know where, how Jesus fits into that? Hebrews tells us that the blood of Jesus cries better than the blood of Abel. Why? Because Abel was killed by his brothers, his brother, just like Jesus was killed by his brothers, the nation he'd worked in. Abel's blood cried from the ground for vengeance. Jesus, as he's pouring his blood into the earth, said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Abel's blood quit running. Jesus' blood is still flowing to wash any sinner who cries out for it. And every figure of, the, of what the Hebrew scriptures has those lessons and more. And I, I guarantee I'm missing one or two points that I should be bringing out about Abel and how he was a foreshadowing of Christ. And, and he preached the gospel. He preached the gospel in his offering, which he brought by the grace of God with the shedding of the blood of the animals, whereas Cain brought the fruits of the ground. And he didn't understand without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Now, I'm going to try to get to a stopping point. But beyond all this, in the, in the understanding, if, if, you, if, you, if you proclaim some four spiritual laws and some stuff like that, you're missing 90% of the message because 
in Israel, Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my ecclesia. If you read the Septuagint, which Jesus and the apostles quote from as much as they do the Hebrew Masoretic Test, making it equal authority, the Septuagint says, I will build my ecclesia for Moses. Right? And Moses even said that another prophet will come along just like me, and you'll give heed to everything he said, and I would that all God's people were prophets. and all. all Moses was a type of Christ. I can't go into that or you'll stone me to death. Uh, you can, I think, John, did you cover Moses in your series? So you can go back on, on the website and listen to his, his uh, Christ in the Old Testament series and listen to the one on Moses. Did you cover Abel in your series? No. So, I mean, there's so many you can't, you can't have to choose, right? He only did 15 out of, uh, out of 1,500. So one, he got one out of 100 or so. <laughs> That's all you can do in 15 weeks. But uh, so the, the point being this, we have this radically individualistic Christianity today. Now, if you, if you understand the gospel in light of the, that it's the fulfillment of Israel's history and story, you understand that when God made covenant with Israel in Exodus 19, after he delivered them from Egypt, which is all a foreshadowing of you're being born again, it's a miraculous birth that you're redeemed with. He, he has to judge Pharaoh, who's a type of this world system, and Pharaoh, a type of Satan, and his army is a type of the demons. Egypt, a type of this world system, right? The slavery, a type of our sin. After he delivers you from that through the waters of the Red Sea baptism and the baptism of the spirit of the cloud of fire and or the pillar of fire and the cloud and so forth, after all that, he makes covenant with all of them together. You can't have God as your father if the church isn't your mother. You're just worshiping a God of your own imagination, as many Christians today are. He came to deliver a people from idols, and he said, if you will indeed, you plural, all of you will indeed obey my voice, then you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a peculiar people, a people for my own possession. Jesus is saying, those people are disqualified, and I'm about to declare Ichabod over their temple. Matthew 16 through 23 is when he does that. And I'm going to build my temple, tear it down, this temple down in three days, and I'll raise it up again. And you are going to be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, offering spiritual sacrifices. You can't do that if you're not under the authority of the scriptures, the spirit, and the elders of a local church that you belong to. Otherwise, you've got Jesus that you made up, which is where most Christians today are living. I talk to Christians all the time in our church that struggle, that have good friends that they love, and, oh, my friend is so messed up, and my friend is, her mother's controlling her, and she's got all this stuff in there. Because you've got to be converted to the biblical gospel. And if you start there, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Amen.